Welcome back to Theory for Turntables, the TFT podcast. I'm Ryan. That's Matt. Hey, Matt, for someone half as smart, you'd be a work of art. You put yourself apart, and I can't help until you start. You stole my lyric, Ryan. <laughs> I knew I did. Hey, Matt, I can't help until you start. Well, Ryan, I'm, I'm never going to know you now, but I'm going to love you anyhow. That's we we converged on um, lyrics from Baby Britain, uh, which is the fourth track on XO uh, Elliot Smith's major label debut. Um, I believe it's his fourth studio album, uh, which was released in 1998. So it's uh, yet another 20th anniversary album. Um that we're doing in this stretch. It came out a little later in the year. So the actual anniversary with probably quite a bit of fanfare and reissue will come uh, in August, but this was already where we are now is around the 20th anniversary of L.A. Smith's um, sort of uh, pop or kind of alt pop ascendancy um, because uh, his real breakout came through his songs um, on the Goodwill Hunting soundtrack, uh, which came out in 1997. Um, and he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song in the um, Academy Awards that, that took place in 1998 um, for Miss Misery. Um, and, and, so, and he performed at the Academy Awards and lost to Celine Dion, if memory serves. Yeah, that was that was the year of Titanic sweep. Right. Um, yeah, and so the 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 plucky... wait ninety eight ninety eight or ninety seven. I guess was, the movie he... movies came out in ninety seven. The awards yeah, exactly. were ninety eight. It oh, is tough. It's right with with Academy Awards and Super Bowls. <laughs> it's it, uh, it's hard to to get those dates right because it, um, the main campaign happens in the preceding year, um, and so how they get numbered is tough. But uh, yeah, I, I, be- I, I believe. I mean, you know, not to well actually, but I believe the the correct plurals are Academies. Award and Supers Bowl. <laughs> bowls of soup. The bowls of soup. <laughs> um, and yeah, so this is. I never plug uh, the. I never really plug the affiliate links on the show notes for these episodes anymore. But there's, you know, I have a little formula that I do with like Amazon and Apple Music links and and things like this. I always link to vinyl unless cassette is available, in which case I link to cassette. But uh, this right now, this record on Amazon is like twelve bucks, and I think there are they were doing that scarcity thing where it's like only three left but i uh i bought one of them uh so now there are only two left (laughs) yeah under on 180 gram vinyl that's you know 12 bucks for this record is uh definitely worth it so even in your podcast app right there you should be able to see the show notes and you can uh you can just click on the amazon link and go go get that that's a that that's a pretty good deal that was oh, not the commercial sponsor. So you, so Matt, you had you had not previously owned or really listened to EXO before. Uh, this was our assigned listening for this week. Is that no, correct? I, I was. I mean, I knew who Elliot Smith was mostly because of Miss Misery, uh, but I didn't. It, he was not my jam. He just wasn't on my radar, which is astonishing to me because this is so right up my alley for any number of reasons that. Um, you know that it's really uh that it's kind of really a crime that i didn't uh i didn't give it any serious attention until now but you you can bet that like in my copious free time to listen to songs not for this podcast <laughs> which is a joke because that doesn't exist you know um the uh i'm i'm definitely putting the catalog in a playlist and and going back i think it'll be great jogging music now that i'm back to running you know, actually, I did, you know, because I also have such copious free time for listening to music. Um, I did. I, guess I didn't put XO on, but I put a um, the Elliott Smith, a kind of compilation kind of greatest hits um on and and uh, ran commute home yesterday and it was it was rough <laughs> it was it was not great because a lot of there's not a lot of percussion especially on the earlier stuff there's a lot there are quite a few waltzes um which is not great for running because you get the right left right left right left right left right left right left uh-huh. um and then there's the the lyrical content as well um although i will say um today in boston it was um rainy all day and uh and and was 
perfect for walking around and listening to uh, to XO, um, you know, and and that the world was the kind of gray, misty, reflected um, world that's kind of depicted in the uh, depicted in the album art um, for this uh, for this album. Um, so that's really that's definitely something that's good for us. Say as you go back, whether it's you, Matt, or uh, you, the listener, if you are relatively new to Elliot Smith, um, I'd say. You know, uh, I mean, the whole discography is worth a listen, but really the two are this and then um, the preceding album, Either Or, which was from 97. And they're kind of two sides of the same co- uh, coin. Uh, Either Or was his last indie album on uh, the label Kill Rockstars um, and has a lot of the same kind of the the songwriting and some of the production qualities at the same place, but it's in the instrumentation um, and and kind of overall kind of production as a kind of a studio craft as a part of the art is is kind of the leap and so um but i think as you know and i actually think either or is probably i i like a tad better because there some like a lot of the songs hit uh, the individual songs hit a lot harder but this uh in revisiting xo it's really striking to kind of hear you know that the move in into a a major label what was a way to you know that that by having a major label what he did was make everything sound a lot more expensive and lush and uh um but didn't really kind of pull back on the kind of songwriting vision um or the kind of you know the brutal painful um kind of emotional honesty of the lyrics but kind of in ensconced them in a in in um even prettier uh, arrangements, right? So there's, it's an even more beautiful tragedy, right? And maybe uh, his most beautiful. Um, and so, yeah. And so it's definitely, definitely give EXO uh, a spin alongside either or. Um, and it's definitely a good introduction to Elliot Smith. Um, so, but definitely uh, spend the bulk of your time with EXO and meet us, af- uh, meet us back here to, to discuss the album after this word from our commercial sponsors. Have you bled white? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought, I, I don't know. Am I like, I, I, I don't know why that is. Bleeding white happened. is a serious medical condition caused by a lack of red blood cells. If you've ever experienced it or know someone who has, you know the importance of donating blood. This public service announcement from the American Red Cross asks you to consider donating blood. Well, wait, I'm, I'm bleeding white right now. What do I do? You donate blood. Go no, to no. the Red Cross office and wait. donate Help. blood. No. Thank Help. you for donating blood. I have no blood. It's so important that we all donate blood. You're, it's like you're ignoring me. <laughs> That's what we specialize in at the Red Cross. The Red Cross, it's not just disaster relief around the world. It's disaster relief right here at home. Donate blood. And I'm back. We're back. I'm back. <laughs> Good. We're back. I was worried about you for a second there. I'm, I know. It was real. I was really committed to that. But I, I, guys, I was just acting. <laughs> Um, you know, Matt, I have a question for you. Yeah, no, lay lay it on me because I feel like you have more familiarity here, and so I I defer to your greater try. I you know, it's like uh, it's like when uh, uh, Elliot dedicated the wasteland to Ezra Pound with the little inscription to him in Latin, the Greater Craftsman. Ezra T- Pound. T.S. T.S. Elliot. Yeah, not Elliot Smith. T.S. Yeah. Uh, it's tr- t- tricky because Elliot Smith, like uh, Ani DeFranco, is one of these first named artists, right? Everyone first, uh, fans, I think, tend to first name Elliot, oh, right? that's interesting. <laughs> uh, T.S. Elliot, yeah. Uh, and I, I, in a similar way, I defer to you as the Greater Troll, you know? Uh, great. Uh, so, are sadness and unhappiness the same thing? <laughs> um, well, I, I suppose the answer is a qualified yes. Uh, sup- the, the answer sort of seems to be superficially no. But I think you have to talk about the difference between kind of logical categories and kind of experiential yeah. categories. Yeah. Right? In logical categories, sadness and unhappiness uh, is the same are not the same thing because sadness right. is a positive claim. It's a, a, the presence of a feeling called mm-hmm. sadness mm-hmm. and unhappiness is a negative claim. It's a, it's the absence of a feeling called 
called happiness. But I think like when you, uh, I think when you sort of look at the, um, look at the experience, you know, uh, it's actually not really opposed like that. They are, uh, continuous and hyperdimensional yep. and that like, uh, so you can sort of talk about being happy or being sad. And, and I also, I, I think happy, sad are not, are, are not opposites. Uh, right. I, I look at them as sort of two separate, um, two separate dials, but they tend to move in sort of inverse correlation with one another. Right. Yep, exactly. And I, you know, I ask because, I mean, there there are a lot, and I think that getting into the, these emotional dials is a is the entry point into this album, um, uh, because an unhappy. I don't know how many times he says unhappy on the album, but I mean, oh, on oh well, okay, um, is one that jumped out at me and kind of made me think of this. Right, it says, um, you know, here's the silhouette, the face always turned away, the bleeding color gone to black, dying like a day. Couldn't figure out what made you so unhappy. Um, you shook your head to say no, 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 and stop for a spell, uh, and stayed that way. Oh well, okay. Um, and and so and then I think hearing unhappiness, it was was interesting to me because it's a different right. It, it, it the a a feeling an emotion of absence, right, um, or an absent and or an absent emotion was an interesting kind of way to express emotion in song kind of negative emotion in song or negative valence in song as opposed to things like sadness or anger um or other types of um emotions that are often um uh, uh, the focus of kind of negative emotional valence songs so I, I that's why i i asked and i i mean i don't know if you noticed kind of the unhappiness here and the way that it interplayed with the other dials. I don't know. Did you, what did you kind of pick up? Yeah. I mean, this is like, I feel like you have to talk about codependency a little bit to talk about this, uh, to talk about this verse, you know, um, we have to talk about codependency. Look, Brian, (laughs) (laughs) look, Brian, I'm not going to, (laughs) I'm not going to become responsible for what you choose to talk about and not talk about you're your own person and you can tend your own garden and we're, we're doing this podcast together and and uh, i'm not going to talk about codependency until you talk about codependency until i'm not going to talk about codependency until you talk about why you don't want to talk about codependency with me <laughs> i'm not going to talk about not wanting to talk about codependency until you talk about not wanting to talk about codependency without me wanting to talk about codependency so this is like I it's it's impossible to be in a relationship with an asshole. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yet many of us do it all the time. All my friends. <laughs> um the uh but the the I, I think there's an interesting kind of push pull in the verse that you read where it's where it's like who who is responsible for supplying the happiness? Right. Who right, whose job is it? Is it the uh, you know, he's talking about a relationship. He said, you know, presumably a, uh, an ex lover or something. So he's talking about a woman. Um, there's a picture of her. The pictures, it's an old picture. He's faded. He's kind of recalling the circumstances under which it was taken or the kind of the general emotional tenor of the relationship at that time and presents it as kind of like the woman is sort of a puzzle, right? Like couldn't figure out what made you so unhappy as though it was, you know, as though that was like bemusing to him. It was right. not, you know, it was like, uh, you know, I don't know, a little, a little scab he couldn't stop picking at or something like, uh, like that now. And, and so there's this kind of, there's this kind of open question of like, is it his job to make her happy? Right? Like what made you so unhappy? It's not you like, th- this is the thing about mm. like unhappiness, mm. right? Like mm. it's not, you were unhappy as though that's right. just like, Hey, today it's, you know, today the sky is blue. It's, you know, 65 degrees and you are unhappy, but no, something, something has to make you unhappy. And I think that that the, <laughs> one of the assumptions, uh, unquestioned assumptions that this album gives lie to is, 
the assumption that happiness is the natural state of affairs, you know, the idea that like that, you know, in all other things being equal, we're going to be happy and that that something kind of has to happen to make you uh, to make you unhappy, to un, to un your happy. And that's not, uh, you know, that's not, that's not the case. And like, this is so like in, in codependent relationships where people sort of take on, uh, kind of responsive, inappropriate levels of entanglement, enmeshment and responsibility for one another, not a normal level, not a normal level of kind of like mutual support or whatever, but like, a, and by normal, I guess, I mean, like workable, uh, and workable, adaptive and, and, you know, tolerable, but a, like a, a super enmeshed level, like, well, you're not feeling good. So I'm not feeling good. You know, that, that sort of thing. Um, like there is this thing of like, well, you have to be happy. You have to be happy. Why aren't, you know, why aren't you, why aren't you happy? It's my job to make you happy. And then it becomes, you know, it sort of becomes this thing. Your unhappiness is this thing that you're doing to me. Why are you unhappy all the time, Ryan? Can't you see how hard I'm trying to podcast with you? Listen, why are, why are you unhappy all the time? Right. I like, I, I care and I understand. (laughs) I'm not asking for you to solve my problems. I just want you to listen to me sometimes. Hey, 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 we're doing next week's podcast. (laughs) Um, I think that, I mean, I think the other, I I brought it up this lyric, but I think the other song that kind of connects to this a little bit and trying to under I mean, I think there is a lot of this album that is kind of excavating. It's an archaeology of unhappiness, right? And kind of digging in to the unhappiness of others and of 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 the self, right? Um, and kind of trying to either describe or explain various um, instances of un- unhappiness, right? And I, I think about in Everybody Cares, Everybody Understands, right? It says, everybody cares, everybody understands. Yes, everybody cares about you. Yeah, and when whether or not you want them to, it's a chemical embrace that kicks you in the head to a pure synthetic sympathy that infuriates you totally and a quiet lie that makes you want to scream and shout. So I, so here I lay dreaming, looking at the brilliant sun, raining its guiding light upon everyone. Right. And, and I think that this idea, I mean, I I think again, it's the chemical embrace is, is the, uh, you know, the piece that I, I fixated on in on this, um, you know, in terms of the, you know, having a little bit as much as, um, um, oh, well, oh, well, okay. Um, kind of wonders about, you know, the causes of unhappiness, you know, the, everybody cares, everybody understands has a fair amount of self-awareness about that a little bit. And yet that, that doesn't make it kind of easier or there's not a, there's not a peace with it, um, at the same time. Um, and there's not a kind of solace in, yeah, there's not there's not kind of a, a source of comfort in everybody caring, right? That that's a very kind of sarcastic sentiment, right? Everybody cares, everybody understands. By which he means nobody understands, so nobody really cares, yeah. right? Well, right, but it, yeah, it, it, exactly, and that. That I think, like I think, uh, so we had to talk about uh, codependency, and now I think we have to talk about psychopharmacology. Right. This was the. This was the. Actually, I I should Google to see uh, when SSRIs, when selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, were sort of first put on the market. Uh, Prozac is the most. um, Prozac is the most famous one, but uh, let's see if we can see a uh, see if we can see a history. Well, I can't. They don't. What the hell good are you, Wikipedia? Why are why do you make me so unhappy all the time, Wikipedia? Um, that that this was like uh, this this it, it this coincided with like a peak uh, kind of discourse around quote unquote chemical imbalance, right? Or or I guess like maybe the first. Um, you know, the first uh, kind of discourse around that and kind of like mainstreaming the discourse uh, around a, a certain kind of mental illness, depressive disorders in in the case of um, uh, in the case of the example that, that we're talking about. Now we have now we have other ones and we're a little more comfortable with the idea that, you know, there are various kinds of, of psychotropic um 
you know, or psychoactive drugs that you can, that you can take, but the, that, you know, can enhance your life or, or, or un, uh, you know, un de enhance your, um, your life. But like there, uh, there was a book around the time by Elizabeth Wurzel called Prozac Nation. Uh, this, this was like really, you know, this was sort of a thing that was in, in the culture, um, you know, because this class of drugs and, and, uh, mostly brand name Prozac were being, um, you know, uh, uh, were being put out there. So, so this, the other, you know, the other metaphor that you hear a lot for, for talking about an organic basis for mental illness is wiring, right? Like the wiring in, in the head and it, you know, the, there had been before, you know, historically in Western society, dating back to the Greeks, like a, a more mystical or sort of personal, um, mm. you know, t- uh, like an imbalance of humors or something like that, which is kind of like, which is sort of quasi organic, but not, I guess, I guess it's organic if you believe that the humors are a real, uh, are a real thing, but like the, like, uh, you know, 19th century capital R romantic melancholy, you know, your, your, your sorrows is of young Werther, uh, and, and things like that. Like, um, the the weakness of that is it kind of it, it sort of makes it your fault right if you don't feel happy you have to like kind of spiritually you just have to like you know get plucky um but the i i think that there's the, the but the organic one is sometimes um inadequate to explaining the lived experience anyway there's a there's a point to to all of this i i think that it's it's important that he describes it as a chemical embrace that right. that kicks you in the head right and a and a synthetic sympathy that infuriates you uh infuriates you totally it's synthetic because it's inauthentic right it's not right. but it's also synthetic because it's it's man made right and like there is this kind of discourse in the culture at this point about putting man made chemicals into your head right into your into your nervous system and the effect of you know the effect of sort of the effect of the chemical embrace of various kinds of pills that you can take and yeah. and things and things like this and and i sort of wonder if he is not um, you know, in some metaphorical way, sticking up for a more, uh, a more holistic, uh, view of emotional suffering, of sort of unhappiness, of depression, of, you know, uh, bad feeling in general, rather than the, rather than the purely, um, you know, totally biological, which might be, which might be a little reductive and not, you know, especially for a songwriter, especially for an artist who sort of makes things right. Like not, um, up to explaining the whole kind of mystical aspect of it all. I mean, it is interesting because I think that, you know, the other piece of this, you know, in terms of both the chemical embrace, the pure synthetic sympathy and the quiet lie, right. And in addition to being kind of about drugs and the experience of drugs and how it affects kind of happiness or unhappiness, I think is also kind of actually weirdly speaking about like the other aspect that is man-made and could be like described as artificial or fake is the human connection itself. Right. <laughs> Which is like a really bleak view of the lyrics. Right. But it kind Again, I kind of go back to the 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 title of the song, right? The everybody cares, everybody understands, and there's also a little bit of the the everybody caring and the kind of you know the intervention or the group of friends who are reaching out being also viewed as being fake, right? As being kind of like not the actual um, real embrace, right? And so the in that way, the chemical embrace is the kind of you know the feeling good from having friends is a lie as well, which is and. I you know, I guess it's, you know, it's worth pausing to say, um, and, um, you know, that, uh, and, and, and allude to this and many kind of listeners who know Ali Smith know, but I think it's, it, it I don't know. Um, it, you know, I, it's hard to imagine the counterfactual of recording this conversation or having, you know, uh, you know, there weren't podcasts didn't exist in 2003 when Elliot Smith committed suicide, but like having this conversation about this album at, at in 98 or in any time.
time between 1998 and 2003 because we we now have hindsight and you I think I mean again it's hard to not imagine kind of seeing all of the kind of veins of kind of depression um, and it's kind of social uh, personal and interpersonal effects running through this album but now you really see it once you know the kind of um, the the biographical details right and so it's it's hard and I mean I guess these things kind of Again, those are some of the details of the albums that jumped out at me. But again, I, you know, this is because I really became aware of Elliot Smith, um, sadly, you know, when uh, right around the time um, that he passed, in part because there's a, a bump of interest, but also because that time of fall of 2003 was when I was kind of getting into indie rock in general. Right. And so. Oh, yeah. Were you in the Elm City? Were, were you into was, indie rock was, in the Elm City? I was into indie rock in the Elm City. Um, and no, because that was the time. Right. I mean, it's, it's interesting um, kind of thinking about where. You know, that uh, Elliot Smith, you know, this album, both this album and either or show up on, um, you know, Pitchfork's uh, list of the top fi- uh, 50 uh, indie rock albums from the Pacific Northwest. Um, and it is kind of a crazy list uh, in that there are tons of them, right? There's a time where kind of indie rock was kind of synonymous with that region. Um, and this kind of late nineties, early two thousands period, um, it was the kind of, you know, the, the rebellion to grunge started like kind of, it, it was started right next to grunge. And so kind of this, um, in this 2003 time was when a number of other, um, Pacific Northwest bands were really breaking out, right. That, um, the shins um and death cab um and then modest mouse was about to have its big breakout um within the that year right and so it it is kind of um it's it's i don't know that there are there's this whole connection you know um in this album both in kind of elliot smith's kind of personal story and in then the moment in which he was kind of a part of and, and he was kind of the I don't know. <laughs> he was the John the Baptist <laughs> top Jesus, right? Like, I mean, cause he, he kind of made that cross to, um, from, from indie to pop, um, a good, a good five years, um, you know, before the, he didn't need no OC, right? Um, he just, I mean, he had, he had goodwill hunting, hunting, which is like, you know, like Southie OC basically. <laughs> I, like I'm, is there beef? I I don't know a ton about this scene, right? Like so, because I w- I was really too young to to uh, to follow it that closely. But like, is there Portland Seattle beef in the in the Pacific Northwest? Uh, yes, in- but it is grass fed. <laughs> there is grass fed indie beef. <laughs> Um. <laughs> um i don't know i i think i think so a little bit i mean i you you certainly have this sense that um ellie smith being from portland um you know was definitely set himself up in opposition to grunge right that and, and we talked about this a little bit this kind of um aesthetic choice and kind of uh, the, an aesthetic of rebellion um, and of kind of acoustic punkness um, in Ani's music last week. And I think that's there at Elliot Smith also, right, where he was playing in the early 90s in a band called Heat Miser that I guess had its earliest uh, origins when he was in college um, at Hampshire College. And they just um, played they just played covers of Rankin Bass Christmas. Exactly. <laughs> uh, songs, you know, that was it. But in like a, in this sort of dreamy indie pop style. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, uh, yeah, post, post shoegaze Rudolph, right? right. <laughs> um, no, but, but Heat Miser, Heat Miser is very interesting because the first two Heat Miser albums are very kind of grungy alt rock, right? And so that there's a sense where they're, you know, at that time, you know, uh, Portland was very much in, um, in, in Seattle's shadow. But then I think that, from the, I, I I think that if there is beef, the place where there's an alliance in the in a kind of um, Pacific Northwest beef is 
with um, Olympia, Washington, uh, which is kind of between Seattle and and Portland, um, and so and and I think that Portland or Portland ended up kind of aligning quite a bit more with uh, with 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 Olympia, right? So generally, is a little more kind of DIY, um, DIY quirky and kind of going off in a million different directions, um, and opposed to kind of the, the, um, kind of monolithic, the monolith of grunge, which is odd to think of grunge as a monolith. Cause as we talked about in our kind of run up to grunge, that it was actually a lot of different things, but as it got captured by, um, by pop, then there was again, a, a kind of splintering. And one of these avenues of splintering was, um, LA's Smith leaving Heat Miser and kind of going in this direction that was much um, was was not folk but folkier, right? Um, and- <laughs> <laughs> we got to talk. We got to talk about. Uh, we got to talk about the uh, MTV t- TRL uh, interview, which I'll put in the show notes, where Carson Daly asks uh, Elliot Smith to explain folk music. Man, um, have you seen a more awkward interview ever? And that's like top five awkwardest interviews. I ever, mean, that's right? like it's like he's doing the Joaquin Phoenix thing that he did for all that time, but like he's not fucking around. Like that's actually that's actually him. He never like shaved the the metaphorical beard of uh, you know of uh, disenchantment. Like he was always uh, uh, he he was always living living behind it somehow. But like son like to me sonically, this is almost a baroque pop, like a chamber mm-hmm. pop sort of al- sort of album in the vein of. Um, I think the original, I forget which of the pitchforks. We'll put, put links to two pitchfork reviews that Ryan found. One, uh, one is the one from archive.org's Wayback Machine that was the original, the sort of contemporary one, um, which is favorable, uh, but not particularly glowing and like is actually a little, a little concerned, like, uh, it's actually like chill out teenagers. His indie cred may be gone, but his, uh, uh, he can still write songs, right? Like it's very concerned with sort of positioning with the kind of the indie authenticity positioning of Elliot Smith and what it means for him to have left his, uh, previous album, which I think was called kill rock stars. Right. Correct. And the end to have signed with DreamWorks when, um, you know, David Geffen was kind of spinning it up. And God, remember when DreamWorks was supposed to be the, I mean, the vision for DreamWorks was that it would be what Disney is today. The kind of like the blob, the entertainment blob, the kind of all consuming thing. And you had like, you had Spielberg for live action motion picture. You had Katzenberg for animated motion picture. And you had Geffen for, for music. Um, these days we would say, what about TV? But you got to understand that this was at the, at like, TV was was crap. TV was, you know, I'm trying to even th- I can't even think of a of a this was pre-Sopranos, you know. And um that that you know, film was this huge exciting uh area with like uh indie indie directors and and all these new companies and you know, these people like Gus Van Zandt who were crossing over into the mainstream and like that you know, it was it was so cool, and that was that. That's what. So, so like, I think that that, given today's like slightly more lackadaisical attitude about corporate sponsorship, corporate partnership, you know, um, the size of a business that that you are sort of aligned with, and the underlying dynamics of that, it's it's it would be impossible. It would be difficult to overstate. It would be like if if Peaches uh, became the next Disney princess, you know the <laughs> the the level of betrayal, like the what a big deal it was to join uh, to join DreamWorks. Like this was supposed to be a kind of a world beating establishment. But to me, like um, one of the Pitchfork reviews, one of the tines of the fork uh, is sort of compares it to the Beatles and it's like yeah. you have your uh you have your you know McCartney-esque piano you have your uh Lennon bloodletting I forget what the Harrison one was and and you have your uh even your your Ringo Papa but I hear much more pet sounds um 
in this. Uh, yeah. Especially, it's just, it's more harmonically complex um, than a lot of the Beatles catalog, which is not a knock on the Beatles that, you know, but they, they are, uh, until they got weird, they they are sort of straight ahead rock songs. Right. And, uh, and well, I guess until, I guess, uh, you know, the beach boys were pretty much straight ahead teen pop songs until they got weird. <laughs> I mean, it's all, it's all, it's all straightforward until it gets weird, you know, and that might be it's the- until there's that that chemical embrace. Right. I, I think that uh, it is the I mean, I, I, I was thinking about this a little bit. I, I think that it is and they're about I would need to look at the timelines, but it is. It's, it's it's roughly similar parts of the Beatles and Beach Boysy catalog, and it's kind of like the later '60s eras of of both. Um, I mean, I think you're right that in the harmonies and in some of the instrumentations, this ends up falling just a little closer to pet sounds. And there's a, there's a few where, I mean, especially in this kind of Baroque or kind of chamber pop piece where it feels very kind of inspired by Brian Wilson. Um, but I think that. There are moments of both uh, of of harmony. I, I think about the uh, I forget which song is the the kind of acapella song. It's I um, didn't. It's the last one, isn't it? It's I didn't. Yeah, it's, I didn't. Yeah, um, and I didn't understand. Actually, um, there are some um, great moments in later Beatles that are very similar to that. The, um, like I think, uh, the sun King, I, this on Abbey road, I believe. Um, and I think, you know, Julia, which is, I believe on the white album, but I probably could be wrong about that. Um, has these similar moments of kind of, um, like kind of psychedelic arranged kind of pop. Um, and then there's a few other moments. Um, I think about, uh, independence day, um, uh, on this record has some of this kind of, uh, the finger picking guitar, which is a lot kind of more front and center on either, or, um, kind of connects to a strand in the Beatles. That's kind of there in rubber soul and then carries through in parts of the, the white album. So that the, there is. Okay. Definitely- so I'm, I am appropriately well, actually, but I, you know, I'm, a, I'm, <laughs> I'm a- not done. I'm not done. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, please, no. <laughs> please continue. Please continue. This is, uh, this, you know, and, and, but just never ask what made me unhappy. <laughs> no, I uh, look. I know it's my fault. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Beatles filibustering you at this point. I know why. Yeah, I know. I, you're unhappy because I'm so worthless, aren't you? You have to like, you have to like show off your Beatles knowledge. Yeah. Well, uh, and you are a specialist. So yeah, it's funny. I guess I think of them as being like, you know, uh, the, my conception of the Beatles is kind of stuck in with the Beatles, right? And maybe help. Right. Or something like that, and that's not that's not fair because it's a much more complex. Well, yeah, uh, you just you just got uh, invited yourself to um, remedial Beatles, Beatles boot camp, <laughs> um, and so I'll see you there. I'll re, be, re, I'll re, be dr- dr- drill instructor Ringo. Um, <laughs> remedial. Yeah, it's remedial, remedial, remedial needles. The, uh, the other thing, like I, I heard uh, a lot of on this was was the influence of a guy named John Bryan, yep. who is a. Uh, uh, musician and producer. He he recorded one record um, that like a solo record that that he released. But uh, it's just it's such a cool guy. Has worked with everyone, but is like is closely associated with uh, uh, Fiona Apple and is closely associated with. Um, like Amy Mann uh, as a. Uh, as a producer, but then his well, work and closely and closely associated, associated with Kanye West as well. He did. Yeah. Mid, I mean, he's worked with period Kanye. He worked with Kanye as well. He, he was a producer on blonde on, on Frank Ocean's, uh, uh, blonde. He, I mean, and like, uh, he worked with polyphonic spree. He worked with punch brothers, which is like, uh, you know, Chris Thiele, um, I think of it as a Chris Thiele project, but you know, the, the other members would probably not be, uh, 
not be cool to not be cool with that, but it's a band that has Chris Thiele in it, um, worked with, with best coast and like worked with sky Ferreira on, uh, not, um, uh, what is the one, uh, what is the one with her boob on it? Nighttime is my time or something like that. But, uh, but the one before, which is called ghost and, um, he has a monthly residency at Largo, uh, I I go see him <laughs> like not infrequently because it's uh um that, so your 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 monthly visit with John <laughs> yeah well I I, I I monthly would be a bit much like and it's always a thing sometimes it's like the, the stage is empty except for like one chair and a guitar uh the one thing he does um all the time is uh uh, take requests like, and huh. you can just call out anything and he can play, he can do a pretty creditable on any instrument. He can do a pretty creditable, uh, version, uh, of, of anything. And the, uh, and, and, uh, and he does, um, he just seems to, every time I've seen him, he's sung, uh, the human leagues. Don't you want me? On, huh. on different instruments and he makes the audience sing the verses and uh really looks angrily at you if you don't like know all the lyrics to the verses of uh of don't you want me but but anyway but then i've gone to see him and it's like uh he did a thing where he he sat at the stage right at the at the kind of famous largo piano had two video screens and like a bank of electronics and he projected onto the video screen superimposed pictures of like uh someone playing a theremin uh flowers growing time lapse um like someone uh, an orchestra playing a charles ives piece and something else while he kind of noodled at the piano triggered electronics um and uh sang bob dylan's the times they are a change in while reading from a biography of Bob Dylan, not out loud. He just had a biography of Bob Dylan in his lap and he was referring to it from time to time. Like it gets, it gets so gloriously weird sometimes. And anyway, like he, so he, he plays on this record and he is one of these like chamber pop guys like that. You know, I had to like take a minute when I when the chorus to Sweet Adeline comes in and um like I, I'm not totally sure what all what that harmonic progression was, or at least I wasn't mm-hmm. I wasn't on first listen. It's really, really complex for um it's really complex for what uh for what a pop song can do. And then and then like in the um and and it's there also is like in in this song, you know, I always want to kind of like narrativize first songs or first moments, but this is a little bit like Ani DeFranco starting with the jangly yep. folk guitar and then the horn section ki- kicks in. Um, there are a couple of verses that have this kind of like this whiny melody. With, you know, a uh, solo guitar line, very simple, you know, kind of spare arrangement and then the chorus sweet adeline the, the whole band kicks in and there's piano yeah. doing mchuck mchuck like playing you know playing rhythmically playing the the role of like a a riff lead guitar kind of uh would play in riff rock and and like um drums and the whole thing and then this like angelic chorus singing descending harmony singing a descending line in in parallel harmony uh all the way down and then these like these like what head scratchy chord changes a little bit and it's like oh okay this is a kind of declaration you know of what this is going to be this is what this this is what this album is about we're kind of we're breaking out of the the sort of the folkier indie folk um box and we're going to do a uh we're going to do a sort of baroque chamber pop album and there's it's kind of there's a a and that kind of going for that 
artful wall of sound um, is is a very is the very kind of connection both to kind of late Beatles and pet sounds. Right. Um, and I mean, I think it's, you know, whether it's in the kind of um, the the chord progressions or just in the instrumentation, um, I think it's very much there. Right. Because like John Bryan only plays on a couple of albums, but right. Or a couple of songs on this album. Yeah. He's not plays, like he's not like the producer of this. Right. No, no. But but he plays vibraphone and Chamberlain. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. And and and. <laughs> You know that this is an album that has those kind of um, vibraphone and and Chamberlain parts, right? The vibraphone um, being a mallet percussion um, instrument, um, and that is, uh, and I, I mean, as a percussionist, but I'm a, uh, I am just a striking percussionist and not a melodic percussionist. I always need to um, take a minute and think about the differences uh, between vibraphones, xylophones, and marimbas. Um, but I believe um, that the uh, vibraphone has the metal bars um, underneath, correct? It has these these resonators, and there's like an electric component to it. Yeah, right, right, exactly. And so that gives it that kind of um, it's it's a little it's less wooden um, than either the the xylophone or marimba, right? Um, Which kind of are wooden, um, and and one has the resonator, and one uh, one does not. Um, And then the the Chamberlain. I mean, can you talk a second about the Chamberlain and and what it sounds like and and kind of uh, and and how it kind of fits to the bur- with the baroque pop song of uh sound of this album or, do, or is, is the is the chamberlain um noticeable um on the song flow it shows it's, up? you know i had to no it, because it's not it's a um so the the uh oh, sorry i need to i need to look yes okay it's like a it's like a mellotron it's a precursor to the to the yeah. mellotron so Correct. um <laughs> there there are a number of ways to do synthesis and there are a number of ways to do sample playback right like in the the there are two different things there are two different ways of kind of making electronic sounds synthesis involves oscillators that produce tones sine waves square waves things like that by combining them uh and doing a little math doing a little you know uh trigonometry right you can sort of transform the the waves to sound like things and this is you know analog synthesizer sounds um and they actually get they get pretty sophisticated uh they get pretty sophisticated through the 80s uh and into the 90s the other model is sample playback where you actually record a real thing uh perhaps manipulate it and um then just trigger that recording every time a uh you know every time the uh an event happens like it's it can be a keyboard controller in which case every time a key is pressed or a wind controller every time like you get the signal uh for sound i'm sitting next to a roland uh, digital piano um that is just my main uh axe at home in the apartment because i have you know no room for piano in here that is uh an 88 key multi-sampled piano sound right so they they played each key at a uh, variety of different vo- uh, velocity is a uh, term of art it means um how hard you hit the key um and you know with the the lid in various positions and like made separate recordings of each of these things and every time you hit it one of those recordings is uh one of those recordings is triggered right so so this is, you know, a digital thing, but it was possible to do on, on analog tape. And the Mellotron is the one I'm most familiar with, but the Chamberlain works in the same way, uh, has a, um, actual analog tape, uh, for each key. And so the sound wow. is, rec- the sound is recorded onto, a- onto, you know, say you have a 50 key keyboard, you have 50 separate tape strips right Whoa. uh underneath that and the key has a playhead on it or maybe it's like a lever that controls the thing that forces the playhead to uh come into contact with the come into contact with the tape and the tape is moving um so you know you get this you get this sound and you stop it by lifting the key and the tape head lifts up from uh from off of the the magnetic tape and you de- and it stops so it's not like i mean it's not like it has a sound cuz you could record any Anything onto there, you could like right. record bird song onto there and trigger it, you know, uh, trigger it with with playing. Um, I, I've actually never seen a Chamberlain, and with the Mellotron, you could kind of lean into the keys a little bit and produce a distorted sound by actually wow. alter, altering the physical contact of um, 
of the the uh, head, the magnetic head with the tape. You also, I think, could break the tape if you were a little too uh, right. a little too aggressive with it. But yeah, so this is like, but this is like, this is a twee bespoke. Right. You know, this was the point. I mean, I wanted to, I mean, and, I, and uh, as is the vibraphone, right? A little so bit. So I wanted yeah. to, to to call attention, and just as a quote from the Chamberlain Wikipedia page, um, you know that so it was intended to function as a home entertainment device for family sing-alongs playing the big bang band standards of the day. Um, and then it goes on to say the Chamberlain's use as a commercial instrument in rock or rock and roll music was never given consideration as Harry Chamberlain, the inventor generally resented rock music and rock musicians. <laughs> and I, I think that, you know, this is the, this is a, a great album or a, a great um, instrument to choose for this album, right? Not that it's, it's necessarily dissing, um, you know, this is not a, a indie rock or a alt rock um, this tape, <laughs> but that there is a sense of, you know, if you are right. And it's getting back to that hating the sound of, of guitars. Right. Uh, and, and I think choosing the Chamberlain um, is right. Is, like this is Chamberlain pop as much as it is chamber pop. Right. <laughs> um, and and that, that there, I kind of view, even though the sound doesn't dominate the spirit of the Chamberlain <laughs> um, kind of pervades, uh, pervades the album. Right. Because it is this, it's chosen both for its sound and for its kind of story. Right. And for, um, you know, it's because like once, once you're on a major label, it can be a lot of things, but he chose to just make that Chamberlain money. Right. Like, <laughs> There's yeah, there are two. And like, this is a, a definite John Bryan move. He's like another John spelled differently. John Vanderslice up in, um, San Francisco, right, at a tiny telephone recordings. But John Vanderslice, I, I think, is more like a synth programmer, and John Bryan is more a um, kind of an organic and more a kind of band leader uh, sort of person where it's, where it's this, like, super twee, uh, like, finely wrought, you know, um, bespoke artisanal uh, recording um uh recording things anyway it's really uh you know it's it's um it's really special i don't know i like i like listening to it and i like the song i like the the sort of um i like the songs uh, the the sound of it so much do you feel like what what do you feel about the relationship between yeah. the the poppy really catchy sort of undeniable fantastic sound and the really sort of like um kind of downer lyrics you know yeah i i was I, I was about to ask the same thing but in the form of saying you know is elliot smith for real yeah well is um, it like a, let, me, let, let me ask a question i think we can use uh tft punk correspondent rachel d as a barometer you know does does she like elliot smith and if so uh more or less than ani defranco uh, the same amount of dislike <laughs> as, as Ani DeFranco. All right, so it's not uh, the the slightly less um, the slightly less downer music uh, is not. Uh, I don't know. Doesn't do no. It and it's not even right. And even Elliot Smith, right, was even is even a little more punk adjacent, right? And yeah. you know, but again, punk in spirit relative to uh, alternative rock, um, and kind of on punk labels, and you know, on the same label as Slater Kinney, um, and kind of uh, and and a few other kind of similar bands. Um, but no, it is. I mean, um, you know, I, I would say that there's a strong there's a strong punk consequentialism. <laughs> Uh, in this household where, uh, you know, um, uh, unless, unless it, it really, uh, is, is a, a, um, we're, we're punk Methodists. Um, and, uh, you have to adhere to, uh, to the letter of the punk and not just the spirit, uh, of, of the punk. Um, I think that, the I, I, there's a f I, I think that in terms of reconciling the poppy sound with the the kind of the the lyrical content, 
I think that there is a in in the production um, and in the arrangement an attempt to make beautiful, right? And and and, and an, an attempt to um, uh, and, and I get back and there may be other lines that kind of illustrate this, but trying to to get back um, to um, a a kind of understanding or peace or um, or or beauty um, and and I think it's there one place where I think it's it's really there and a kind of fascinating thing with kind of the studio recordings of, of Elliot Smith is the way the vocals are produced and they're often um, double tracked and I, I you know I think the beginning of um, the the beginning of Sweet Adeline is kind of an exception for that. Uh, but most of the rest of the uh, album is double tracked, and it's a very different from um, Elliot Smith live. Um, and I know um, you know there are I know some kind of super Elliot Smith fans who really seek out the bootlegs and the live recordings. Um, but it's a very different experience. The, the live recorded Elliot Smith is a lot closer to bright eyes kind of sure. um and, and to and that period of, yeah that the the kind of early period bright eyes right exactly like pre i'm yeah. wide pre uh what digital ash bright eyes right and it's just the the, the voice kind of wavers a lot more but i, th- I think that the, the difference is is that when elliot smith's voice is wavering in that like um the academy awards performance it's not an affectation <laughs> um like you know and and uh and it's and 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 that is kind of him um kind of being you know paralyzed and uncomfortable right not being the kind of ham who's kind of grabbing the the spotlight um and similarly right you you mentioned the um the TRL interview with Carson Daly um similarly right the the kind of the the grumpiness uh and the kind of unwillingness to kind of um you know the uh, to to play in the kind of vapid banter um is not really I'm above this like I think he was really trying <laughs> um and and so but what i think about the the use of of the studio in on this album is that it is an attempt to try to create a sense of what the beauty in his kind of world is and 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 like and so like especially the idea of the um double voice and i think it was one of the beatles i think it was lennon uh, john lennon worked with this kind of um kind of double tracking a lot as well. And it's a similar way, uh, you know, he said that he would double track his vocals to try to like, um, create a recording that sounded like how he believed his voice sounded, right. How it sounded inside his own head, uh, or in his idea of his voice. And I know that that idea of kind of, um, studio, wizardry and, and production kind of creating a more real um uh, uh vision to the world I, it's it's cited i'll see if i can um track it down i think on in a new yorker article about t-pain and, and autotune right um and about the kind of realness of of autotune and kind of the uh, the real realness but kind of artfulness of of autotune and so i i think that i i, I cue in on the voice um and see that as the kind of way in which as that as dialoguing with the rest of the um the production as well i don't know um if you have kind of a take on this or if there are you know kind of specific songs or sonic moments um that illustrate this for you or kind of um um lend a kind of different lens on on what the the relationship between the lyrics um and the music no i mean i think that's i mean i think that that's right i also like i i also it it provides opportunity to kind of reflect on being a musician and being a performer are two different skill sets. You know, they're sort of related skill sets, but like being a, being a songwriter or someone who can re- record music, even very emotive, uh, you know, or very, you know, sort of intense, uh, intensely perform music in the studio, uh, is a different skill from being able to kind of connect with an audience and kind of like taking over a room and kind of, uh, you know, uh, not dominating, but kind of filling a room with, you know the charisma of one's uh uh presence and whatnot um but it right. it, it also like uh i, I just want to return to that trl uh interview a little bit where uh this is this must be post either or right and it's like in the run-up to the oscars um 
we'll put both the Oscar performance and this uh, this Carson Daly masterpiece in in the show notes. And uh, Carson Daly asks him if he plays folk music, if this is folk music, and he says no. And and then says a couple different things. No, I don't play folk music. Folk music is a style. Right. And then he says, folk music, it's like the song, it, it has one moral or message. Right? right. And a pop song, it can be nothing. It can mean nothing or everything or whatever you want. You know, and so like the idea that the difference between uh, the difference between folk music, I mean, they're talking about acoustic music generally. Right. And like sort of strummed guitars and kind of solo voice and also that like, you know, folk is sort of associated with, um, I don't know, a certain singing, a certain kind of like wavery singing style because the, the, uh, you know, canonical examples of things and the sort of ethno musicologists who went out and made field recordings of a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, people, a lot of the actual folks singing <laughs> their music, uh, was, um, you know, was in, was in that style and, and Elliot Smith just kind of has it because that, that's how he sang. Um, but, uh, the idea that it's, it's like, uh, what the stability and kind of unification of interpretation, right? The idea that it's, it's the kind of single meaning that makes it a folk song and multiple, yeah. multiple or indeterminate meetings that makes it a pop song is so, so interesting. It's, I, I mean, for what it's worth, it's false, right? That is a, yeah. It's so a, it's like, shall we strap in for the second hour of our podcast? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it's not, it, we don't need to go into why it's wrong, but like it's his, you know, it's his point of view and he's trying to, I, I don't think he actually expected to be put on the spot to like give a typology of musical genre right then so i think we should like maybe take it with a grain of salt like that this is like he's sort of stabbing at something he's sort of reaching it he's sort of reaching at something and um and 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 it gets to like what you were talking about the the uh the uh kind of multi-vocal both in the sense of double tracked and also in the sense of like uh sort of competing moods um within within a single song that there is something about kind of multipleness uh there's something about um you know, there's something about uh, the indeterminacy of meaning that seems to go, to go into it, and so it's sort of appropriate uh, that he be, you know, that that he have these kind of different moods, kind of competing or in in productive tension with one another on the record. Yeah, and I mean, and you see that again in the um, in the album art as well, right? Where you have these kinds of a montage of images um, of of kind of reflections of of himself um, and of his producer and of the studio that are kind of overlaid um, uh, overlaid with various um, levels of of opacity, right? Um, and um, and and so I think that you have that sense of that. that um, that kind of multiplicity, and I, there's—I I wish I could find it. I, I know I probably won't find it until afterwards. There's another lyric that's exactly on this kind of that that actually talks about the move from kind of um, you know between very uh, you know seemingly opposing um, uh, emotions, and 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 I think that like you're absolutely on um, that idea of this kind of multi vocalness, and it's there, um, and, and it's it's just this kind of complexity is there in a lot of dimensions of the album and and i think it's what's right that you have the kind of beauty and the bitterness kind of living together right and the kind of um and and a kind of hope a hopelessness um and a kind of sense of kind of great kind of you know synthesis and invention and creativity together and it's what makes this um such a you know a unique album um and and a kind of 
and a, a return to you know um you know a a, a kind of neo a neo pet sounds right and a, a pet sounds for its um a moment that then really does make it a harbinger for both kind of um you know later beach boys and later later beatles and um to really um come to the fore in various strands of of indie becoming pop and right and, and if that's kind of part of the story we're telling right now in um, in 1998, right? And it kind of started in 97 as we were talking about the various strands of of indie that kind of um, rebelled against uh, alternative, you know, the modest mouse um, and, and pavement. Then this kind of moment of, of XO um, and the kind of leap that it, it represents kind of creativity um, creatively um, then really kind of sets up um, it, it makes it such a, a important kind of inflection point or plateau that kind of connects the 90s um, to the 2000s, right? And it is this really um, interesting um, point in kind of where we've been and where where we're going in this TFT journey. And the journey, this, this uh, stage of the journey is ending, but it will continue next week. And it will continue next week with our 300th episode, um, our, our 225th music episode. Uh, for those of you who've been... Um, with us for all 300, you'll know that the first 75 were about um, the sociology of teen soap operas. But from um, uh, episode 76 uh, onward, we've been a music podcast, and we've been we've been going weekly um, since the fall of 2013. Um, and so we're we're at uh, music episode 225. Um, uh, and and uh, album uh, 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 yeah or and and overall episode three hundred so we have something special planned we'll still be historical um, but we're going to jump a little bit um, for a a special TFT anniversary episode in only the way that we know how uh, in the only way we know how uh, and so which means it will both um, be alienating trolling um, and also really will make you think a little bit um, and so. Uh, until then, um, get in touch with us in all the usual ways, Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, show notes at overthinkingit.com, um, and um, meet us back here next week. Um, and whether we 100% troll you, 100% uh, make you sad, or 100% all you with our heartbreaking beauty, just know that we will keep it real.